We're in Clonmel, on the outskirts of the town centre. It's lovely, the hills kind of roll down to the river and it's busy enough. But we're just going to have a little wander around and see if there, on the off chance anybody might remember Samantha being here. At the end of episode one, we found out Gardy had just discovered a name and an identity for the girl they found wandering on the streets of Dublin. Samantha Azopardi. Hi, sorry to bother you. My name's Nicolina, uh, RTE Radio. Okay. There was a woman, an Australian woman called Samantha Azopardi, who I believe was staying around here in a while back now, 2013. Okay. So I don't know which house it was. It's 2023, and we've come here to Clonmel in County Tipperary, looking for answers to a mystery that began in Dublin 10 years ago. Gardy did think she was about 14, and that was as a result of medical experts taking a look at her. But it's turned out she's now 25. She's been in Ireland for the last three weeks, staying with a relation down in Clonmel. The GPO girl, as she became known, was believed to be a teenage victim of sex trafficking. But in reality, she'd come from Australia to visit relatives in Ireland. There's a guy who stayed there, he's a guy with a beard. I think his sister owns the house just down here, right? Go down through two sets of lights and you're taking a left. It's only a small distance. This search will take us far from the streets of Clamell and a long way from Ireland into a surreal world where fact and fiction are often blurred. Well, her lies and her deception over a long period of time were of an extraordinary magnitude. I certainly don't want to believe there are people like this, but I know there are. We're at the bottom of the road where we think Samantha has a party was staying. So we think she was here probably for maybe a few weeks or months. From RTE Documentary N1, I'm Nicolene Greer. And I'm Sharon Davis. And this is Finding Samantha. I don't need to be saved. I need to be found. Episode 2. Webs of Deceit. Let's go back to that moment in 2013, when it was revealed that the person authorities believed was a sex-trafficked teenager was in fact 25-year-old Australian Samantha as a party. I won't say what I said. I was disgusted. That's Sue Highland. And I was really pissed off for, like, the guards that had put so much manpower into this, like, and then for it to come out that none of this is real. Sue was in the next cubicle at Temple Street Hospital, the night the girl from the GPO was brought in. She spent sleepless nights worrying about someone she thought was a homeless waif. In four weeks, she spent in Temple Street in a private room being guarded. Like, how much did that cost the state? And if a hospital bed was needed for somebody who was actually really sick, a child, and that we didn't have one because somebody was there that didn't need it. It was really annoying when I found it out. And I remember thinking, I lost so much sleep over (laughs) And a small observation by Sue on that night in the children's hospital suddenly made a lot of sense. I remember thinking to myself, and this is probably the stupidest thing ever, but her hair has highlights in it. And then I was like, but she's only 14. She's very young to have highlights in her hair. I think I actually put her up on Facebook as well, um, saying... How could she not talk? For that, like, that's what I couldn't get over. 
how could you sit for that long and you're being asked these questions? It was just so strange. And that's something we've learned about Samantha. Even if you've only encountered her for a short time, she has a way of drawing you in. It's just so strange that it, like, it was such, I literally a fleeting kind of thing one night. There was that two-second eye contact that just stuck with me. I still remember the week, like, after just that one glance of her, and I'll never forget her face, like. For more from the High Court uh, about that remarkable story about a young woman who had been found last month on a distressed state. When the young woman was thought to be a 14-year-old girl, lawyers acting for her legal guardian uh, had wanted her to be placed in a secure unit. Uh, Now, as a result of the appeal issued by the Gardaí yesterday, she was identified. So the issue of whether she should be detained in a secure unit for minors no longer arises. So the court was dealing with the aftermath of that identification. The police and welfare agencies in Ireland, even the courts, all seem to have made assumptions based on how she presented herself, as a victim. She now wasn't the victim they thought she was, but that didn't make it straightforward. Was she still someone who needed to be looked after? Now we have a new issue to address, so what do we do with Samantha as a party, rather than what do we do with a a young identified child? That's Dave Gallagher, the Irish detective who led the investigation into the girl at the GPO. A lot of people invested a lot of time in this. Some people got emotionally invested in it as well. And I suppose some people would form the view that she's still a, a vulnerable adult and others would form the view that the book should be drawn at her, you know. It's certainly split opinions. People thought she should be prosecuted uh, for wasting a guard of time. That's Stephen Breen, crime editor with the Irish Sun newspaper. The cost of sending her back to Australia as well was going to be at the taxpayer's expense. So, But there were others who thought, look, she has mental health issues. You know, why would she go to these lengths to try and show that you know, she was um, a child, that she was suffering from some kind of illness? Or, you know, what was in it for her? There was no financial gain. Samantha cost the Irish state hundreds of thousands of euros and thousands of hours of police work trying to figure out what had happened to her. Monetary harm, yes, to the state. Whilst we were all engaged in Samantha as a party's uh, case, you know, other cases weren't being progressed or, or, or being looked at. But the question remained, should she be prosecuted for what she had done? There was a view that the offence of wasting police time had occurred. We looked at that. But here was a bizarre detail. She never spoke. She never made any written report. She never uh, said anything to us. Legally speaking, she hadn't hadn't made that report. She couldn't be charged with making a false report when she hadn't made any report at all. Was this intentional on Samantha's part? Was it a highly thought-out manipulative action? Or was she just acting on impulse? Gardy also recovered her phone and she had researched uh, children's hospitals in Ireland and the UK. So it showed you the level of, of um, and sophistication and how clever she was as well. When she was staying with her relatives, she left behind her ID and her clothing. So when the guards were made aware of her identity, they then traveled to the, the, the relative's home who had absolutely no idea what was going on. And that relative's home is in Clonmel, 200 kilometers south of Dublin, which is where we've gone to follow the trail of Samantha in Ireland. And I've been directed to a little terrace of houses on a main road. I'm really hoping that we might find some answers here. 
I don't know who's living in this house, but we might knock and see if anybody knows of her or knows of the story. Hi. Hello. Hi. Yeah. Um, my name's Nicolene Greer and I'm from RTE Radio from the documentary in one. We're calling about a girl called Samantha as a party who I think was living in this or staying here visiting relatives in 2013. That's no, not the case, not no. The case. I remember the Dublin part of the story, you know, but I didn't yeah. realise there was a connection back to here. You know? Hi. Hello. I'm sorry to bother you. Um, my name's Nicolene Greer, and um, there's a story that happened uh, a few years back here, 2013, there was a girl called Samantha Azapardi that was staying here. And we're just asking around because we were told that it was on this terrace of houses that she was staying. So that's, we're just wondering. I don't think it was. Do you not? No, I think I know the story now that you're talking about. It'll be your work cut out for you, you know. But having said that, it's definitely this area, as far as I can remember. After talking to a few people around the area, it looks like this is the house that Samantha was staying at with her stepfather when she was in Ireland. I knock on the door and speak with the man who lives in the house. Samantha's mother's former partner. He doesn't want to talk on tape, but he does tell me it was where Samantha had stayed when she was in Ireland. He did just say there, you know, she was a lovely girl. And he said he has two sons with Samantha's mother. They, they weren't married. He kept saying, I'm not her father, I'm not her father. So he said Samantha came over to see her, half, her two half-brothers. He said they're not in contact with her anymore. He said, uh, I don't know what triggers her. I don't know what makes her do what she does. And I said, oh, was she, is she okay at certain times? And then she kind of goes, and he said, yeah, she, she, and he kept pointing to his head and kind of saying, I don't know what's going on with her. Um, but he said, she's lovely and she cared for her brothers so much. There doesn't seem to be any malice in her. Do you know, there isn't badness, but he just doesn't know what's going on with her. And he said that his two sons aren't in touch with her. It sounds like they did have a close relationship. She obviously came all this way to see them, so they must have been close. And he said she really cared for them and she was a really sweet girl. That was it. But that really sweet girl had left behind some clues for the Gardaí to find when they went to Clonmel. Samantha had arrived in Ireland on a fraudulently obtained passport. And not only that, She'd obtained a credit card in the same name. So they found a visa card in the name of Georgia McAuliffe. Irish Sun crime editor Stephen Breen. And they established that she'd flown from Australia in the name of Georgia McAuliffe to Manchester using this debit card. And it was a false account in that name. And the guards established that through the course of her flights to England and arriving in Ireland, it, it, it was somewhere in the region of 13,000 uh, Australian dollars. So a lot of money was spent there. It's a criminal offence to use stolen identity documents to obtain a passport and a visa card. We, where we subsequently found out she travelled to the country on, on false documents. So technically under your Passport Act there, there's a, there's a criminal offence committed as well. Samantha as a party was in fact a fraudster and had convictions for fraud in Australia. And this was her part of her modus operandi and the fraud was something that she specialised in. But even though it was a serious offence that could have landed Samantha in big trouble, she had evoked enough sympathy from the Irish police for them to overlook this crime. We looked at those, those options. I was also aware of her vulnerabilities as well. 
and you have to weigh up, you know, the the public interest and the decision was made not to proceed with with uh, a criminal prosecution over in this jurisdiction. The Irish authorities decided to solve the problem of Samantha by sending her back to Australia. We explained to her that um, I had been speaking to her parents in in Australia. Was she happy to voluntarily go? She indicated non-verbally with nods to the head that she was ready to go home. There's two members of Vanguard Shikana travelled with her and were met by her parents and the local police. She didn't talk on the flight home, so uh, she maintained her non-verbal stance. She went home voluntarily. She wasn't deported. Good morning. This is AM. I'm Tony Eastley. Ireland's mystery girl, who it was feared was the victim of sex trafficking, turned out to be an Australian woman who's known to police and who is now on her way home. When Samantha arrived back in Sydney, surprisingly, the Australian authorities also chose not to charge her at this time for travelling on a fraudulently obtained Australian passport. But Samantha has been charged by police many times. In fact, Samantha has spent most of her life pretending to be someone she is not. And it's meant that she stood before many judges in many courts. Including as recently as last year in 2022, when Samantha Azapardi faced her 100th criminal charge, a charge of falsely representing herself to police after presenting as being a 15-year-old cult member who had been coerced into sex. I'm just outside Picton Court at the moment. Samantha had to walk through a gauntlet of uh, news reporters out the front of the court. Her face was concealed by a mask and dark sunglasses and she also had a scarf draped over her head. In this case, she wasn't sent to jail, but given a three-year community order. Samantha's had a lifetime of scamming across three continents using over 100 different identities and leaving many victims in her wake. I thought that she was, like, the real deal because she said that she was my mentor and I believed it. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty um, horrific. I just can't get my head around that. I mean, you can't get your head around any of it. You feel a bit like you've been violated, I guess. A lot didn't make sense at the time that it now sort of feels like it does. It can be difficult to get your head around just how prolific Samantha has been in scamming people right across the world. When we first started our investigation, we had no idea of just how big a story it was, how many people it involved, or that it would draw us into Samantha's wild world. Over the past two years, myself, Sharon and the wider team behind the story have tracked down a huge amount of information about Samantha. We've talked to former acquaintances, professionals who dealt with her, victims she left behind, police, judges, care workers, anyone who could tell us something. We've also trawled through public records and police files on Samantha's actions. And it's in one of those Australian police records that Sharon finds the very first charge against Samantha, where she crossed that line into breaking the law and getting caught And for that, we have to travel 16 years back in time, to 2007, and to the northern Australian coast. I applied to the court archives in Queensland, and after months of delay, I found out that, as far as we know, 
she was charged for the first time in 2007 in Rockhampton. She was just 19 at the time and had changed her name to Lindsay Coughlin. It seems the fictitious Lindsay Coughlin was out to defraud someone, but the charge sheet doesn't reveal who that might have been. Not much is known about Samantha or the newly named Lindsay between 2007 and 2010. But when she does come back on the radar, she's become someone else again. And this is when things start to get very strange. In 2010, a young woman by the name of Dakota Johnson, yet just like the actress, appeared at a Brisbane high school wanting to enrol. She said she was 15 years old. The school had a few concerns for her and contacted the police. Dakota had told them that she'd been living on an island off the coast of Queensland with an uncle. Her mother was a magistrate, her father was a neurosurgeon. They both resided in Holland, but tragically had just been killed in a car accident in France. Dakota had in her possession a pink notebook, and when police examined it, it contained details of violent sexual offences that she said had been perpetrated against her. Dakota had also shown the school a reference, allegedly from a prestigious educational institution in Switzerland. But when the school in Brisbane made inquiries with the institute, they said no such person as Dakota Johnson was known to them. Police then were a little bit curious about this Dakota Johnson, so they accessed her computer. And what they found was a photo of her and a family on the Harbour Bridge in Sydney. The photo had a date, and that date was their clue. Police contacted the tour company in charge of bridge climbing and asked to see records of the participants on that day. And they found a match. Dakota Johnson was indeed an actress. In real life, she was 22-year-old Samantha Azapardi. Samantha was convicted in Brisbane in late 2010 of false representation, intent to forge false documents and failing to provide information to the police. She received a 12-month good behaviour bond but was already planning her next move. In early 2011, 23-year-old Samantha joined a Christian community in Brisbane and used them to con her way into a church community in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. Sharon has found a member of that community. Her name is Abby. To begin with, Abby is very reluctant to speak to me. She doesn't want her second name used. She split from the church. It wasn't a happy parting, and she wants to protect others who were involved at the time. Abby wasn't easy to find. I scoured online message boards and other social media sites and eventually tracked her down, a long way from the Blue Mountains. We meet in a park. It's late spring, subtropical humid with kookaburras in the trees and about as green as you could imagine. It's actually a beautiful background, the whip birds. and the, <laughs> You couldn't get a more Australian sort of... <laughs> Scene, could you? Painted the church at the time was really lovely, very welcoming. It was a more charismatic Pentecostal church. Oh, you 
The community in the church, there was a lot of great musicians, so we had really wonderful music and it was a very open and friendly, um, very communal-based church. The family that I knew were the youth pastors and they were also a very welcoming family. The youth pastor in this family was called Brad Blacker. And one day in February 2011, Brad got a call from a young girl named Dakota, Cody for short. Cody told them that she'd had a dream vision where she had seen the church that they were involved in and then she saw Brad's phone number on in this dream vision and then she had called him. As a church community at the time, there was a lot of like the prophetic and visions and dreams. And so it seemed like this was from God, like this was the Holy Spirit had given her this vision. I think I was like everyone else, like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. God has brought this young woman here. In 2013, when Brad Blacker heard about the GPO girl in Ireland, he realised this was the same girl his family had taken in two years earlier. Of course, we wanted to talk to Pastor Blacker, but he's no longer willing to speak. At the time, he told ABC Australia about what had happened. She came to Sydney and asked if she could come to our church. So he said, yeah, come along to our church in the Blue Mountains. They ended up picking her up from Sydney and bringing her back to their house and inviting her to stay in their home. I believe she moved in with them as soon as they picked her up. It just all happened very quickly. She opened up about some serious allegations of things that had happened to her in her past and said she feared to go home. Do you know what she told them to make them feel that they needed to take her in? She did have a story about being abused and that she had escaped from a European country It was Sweden or Switzerland, I can't remember, and that she had been in an abusive home and she was looking after her little brother and she had left him behind. So she was European? Yes, that's how she presented. Did she have an accent? She had a slight accent when I met her and also blonde hair. So she did pass as European. So we decided to provide her with some accommodation and try and help out, pursue whatever she could do with her life and, yeah, try and find help. My friend in that family was a very lovely, personable mum and woman and she welcomed her with open arms and then they really treated her like part of the family. She went on all their outings with them and she also babysat their kids and spent a lot of time with their children. So they very much embraced her as part of the family and she became very attached to the mum. She really developed a strong emotional dependency, um, especially on my wife, um, constantly wanting her attention and her focus to feel some sort of centeredness. One of the results of Samantha's scams is that an emotional bond is often created between herself and a caring person. Is this part of Samantha's plan? She was always with them everywhere they went and she definitely became like the big sister, the mum's helper and 
she became one of their kids. She was doing everything that a teenager in a Christian family would do. She got baptised. Her baptism happened in a swimming pool. There's a photo of a whole bunch of young people and people standing around a pool. The first time Abby met the 14-year-old Cody was in her friend's, the Blacker's house. She was very reserved towards me, looked down a lot, spoke quietly, and then seemed to get really agitated. She seemed like a traumatised young person to me. I like to know people's stories. And so when I was asking her questions, first she was very open to talk about it. And then when I was asking different questions about where her brother was now and how could she leave him behind and what was going to happen, then she just got annoyed and she just kind of stood up and huffed and walked off. For me at the time, that felt really odd. And then they tried to enrol her in school And that's when things came to light a little bit. But your memory is they found some sort of documentation? Yes, with her name on it, with Samantha's name and date of birth. We've been told by another person who wouldn't agree to be interviewed that a number of fake identity documents were also discovered in her room. There was some kind of confrontation not, I'm not sure if it was on the phone or face-to-face, but it ended very quickly. She built up fake profiles of her parents online. Yeah, so... And then I, I would message the dad over Facebook and then he would write something back. But now I obviously know that wasn't him, that was her getting on the internet somehow on her phone and typing a message back, pretending to be her dad. She just left and then they were left trying to pick up all the pieces and were quite concerned about who they'd had in their home, Um, especially because she'd spent a lot of time with their kids. Imagine welcoming a young woman into your home, giving her your love, even trusting your children with her, only to find out she isn't who she says she is. She was devastated because she had accepted this teenage girl into her life and that was at the time that was very much what she felt like her calling was in the world was to be involved with young people and humiliation especially in the way that it was done because it was so targeted to our spiritual beliefs at the time and that family's spiritual beliefs that that was so used by Samantha to get into their family. How did you become aware of, you know, the whole Samantha story after that. My friend rang me and told me what had happened. Then I saw an article online about what happened with Samantha in Ireland and I sent it to my friend and I was like, oh my gosh, it's Cody. Like, she's at it again. Looking back on that period now with the benefit of hindsight and all we now know Mm. about Samantha. How do you think about it now? I guess I can still see how it could happen and that she was really good at her story. She was very clever in the way that she found them. Um, She obviously did her research on them to know where they were and what church they were involved with. Now I just think, yeah, she was, she's a great con woman. <laughs> she's really good at what she does. 
She is really good at what she does. But why is she doing these things? That's the question that has baffled most people that she's come across. The only person who knows the answer is Samantha herself. Sharon approached Samantha as she arrived for that court appearance in Sydney last year, facing another charge of false representation, and then sent us this WhatsApp message. Hi there. I'm just outside Picton Court, and I've just seen Samantha. She's just arrived at the court. Faces covered with sunglasses and a mask again. Uh, she was standing outside the court, so I approached her and asked her if she would do an interview with me. She said no, she didn't want to, that she was uncomfortable talking to me. She was very nervous, her voice was shaking. She also said that she was happy for it to go ahead without her, out her voice in the podcast. I've left it there and uh, just asked her to reconsider as I as I walked away. In the next episode, does Samantha want to break her silence? And she wrote, Are you okay? And then she deleted it. And how Samantha has created an online universe with a head-spinning network of characters. The potential adoption was by a family. She told the people that she was a Russian gymnast. She'd been in Russia. The techniques that she's employed are exactly the same as online cyber criminals. Finding Samantha is written, recorded and produced by Sharon Davis in Australia and Tim Desmond and me, Nicolene Greer, in Ireland. Executive producer, Liam O'Brien. Soundtrack composed by Paddy O'Flynn. Sound engineer is Damien Chanel. If you have any information or tips on this story, email us, documentaries at rte.ie. For further information on the series, visit rte.ie forward slash finding Samantha. Join us again for episode three, Sam as. The show must not go on, but I know it will. I give up. I give up giving up. I am lost. I don't need to be saved. I need to be found.